Hey everybody, this is Dave from Nerds on Film. Hey, wanted to just chat with you for a second. If you're having fun listening to Brian and Eric talk about history week to week, why not hop on over to the other podcast and listen to Brian, myself, and Sarah Ashley talk about films. We talk about film theory. No, we don't. We talk about actors. Yes, we do. We talk about movies to no end. It's a great time. It's a little bit more adult, but it's a wonderful, wonderful experience. Check it out. All right, Brian, here we are, all ready and uh, set up and ready to go. And, uh, oh, wait, hold on. i got to plug my uh, my iPad in. Hold on okay. Oh, no, no problem. Battery's a little low. Yeah, that's cool. Hey, hey, did you ever notice that button down here? No. the hell is that for? I don't know. My God, man, it's a passageway. Holy crap. You know, my grandfather and my father built this shed. They must have built this in here, like, 40 years ago. <sighs> so dark and damp down here. If only we had a torch. Oh, look, one right there. Oh, good, <laughs> Go excellent. Do, do, do you have a lighter? Uh, sure, why not? Okay, great. <sighs> it's here, really dark. Here, you hold, you, hold, you hold the torch. All right. All right. Oh, my God. Do you see what I see? Oh, my God. It's Action Comics number one. I can't believe it. I this... didn't even know my father collected. Sir, this is everything we've been asking for. We, we we won't have to ask for donations. We'll be able to get an air conditioner, and we'll be able to to go ahead and get a new computer. Oh no! Oh, oh, no! Oh, oh, no! God! Eric, why did you uh, have to put the torch so close to it? I just wanted to see it. Uh, Brian, I am. Shh. Don't. on history. I'm Brian Moriarty. And I am still Eric Brickmont. Eric, how you doing, sir? Uh, I'm doing I'm doing well, considering the weather is as bizarre as it is. And you know me, I, I am not a fan. Yeah, we are two days in the summer, and we are, we are getting this kind of weird, like, rainstorm that uh, is very uncharacteristic of California. I wouldn't really call it a storm. It's more of a rain inconvenience. Yeah. It's kind of a bizarre, warm drizzle, and I'm, I'm not happy. <laughs> warm drizzle. I'm not sure if I... <laughs> That sounds more like it should go on top of a dessert, not not necessarily uh, for for weather. Yeah. So, other we, than that, I'm fine. Well, that's good. Yeah. I'm still getting over what happened in the cold open uh, <laughs> because that comic is worth so much money. You're just going to keep rubbing it in, aren't you? Absolutely. I'm never going to be able to get over this. Nope. No. Uh, never. Yeah. Not not at all. Thanks. I appreciate that. No know. problem, sir. That, that's that's what the core of our friendship is me just guilting you <laughs> for eternity. <laughs> Listeners, you have no idea how true that statement actually is. <laughs> uh, no, but yeah, I'm, I'm doing real good. Good, really good. Right. Well, we have a couple of great pieces of feedback I'd like to share before we, we jump into it. Yeah, let's, let's get, always get into the listener feedback first. So we got a shout out from uh, Father John. Father John. Father John. So we were at BayCon a couple of weeks ago. We talked about this in our earlier episodes. And we see this uh, priest come up to us in uh, normal priestly regalia, but he's also got like a vest on photography vest but it's full of patches of all this different sci-fi stuff on it and he started asking us about the podcast and his name is father john john uh is a priest in richmond california and he just started listening to our episode and really just kind of dug us i thought that was really fascinating you don't think of a priest being a person who would dabble that much into sci-fi but we forget that priests are very human as well as well they're not just these ecclesiastical people so i thought that was very cool well what was even funnier is that there was actually a catholic convention going on at the same time as a science fiction convention on the other end of the of the civic center yeah and we thought he was here for both but he wasn't he said 
Yeah. Just he, for the sci-fi, which is great. He was there for the sci-fi because he said he didn't want to run into per, per, uh, parishioners because it would feel like work, is what he said. <laughs> and this is his time to relax. Exactly. Yeah. And interestingly enough, because of uh, his uh, loyalty to the Bacon before he was ordained, he now says Mass at Bacon. Which is so cool. Yeah, I thought it was really, really interesting. <laughs> I love how you refer to it, the loyalty of the bacon. <laughs> yeah, loyalty to the bacon. Yeah. Loyalty to the bacon. Yeah. <laughs> bacon, like it's some like autonomous uh, mass or something. Some sort of, uh, I think it's word I'm looking for is amalgus. Amalgamous? I think it's a force in the universe. Words are not my strength tonight, unfortunately. Fitting that we're doing a podcast when I can't speak. That's awesome. So, How's that any different from... An, oh, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. This tone is going to be so like, <laughs> sharp tonight. It I is could, a little hostile tonight. Just a little bit. It's if, okay. if, only there was, if only there was someone to balance things out. Someone to, to make things a little more even. Maybe cut the tension. Oh, if there was only somebody here. That's your cue line. <laughs> you really want me to try to balance it out? I might make matters worse. <laughs> well, that's okay. Uh, joining us tonight, folks, is Rick Pepito, uh, a host of another podcast called uh, Think About This, and he is also an independent comic book publisher, and that's why he's here tonight, representing as Script Com or Script Comics, correct? Yes. All right, Rick, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Well, we're excited because you're our first like long distance guest for sure. And yeah, this is weird. Yeah. <laughs> and you know what? It's weird that we're doing this podcast on the night of the supermoon. Oh, absolutely. This damn supermoon is causing all sorts of uh, strangeness in the world. So the closest the moon's been to the Earth in 2,000 years, correct? No, it's the closest it's been in about three months. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> this happens four times a year. And the reason why people talk about this is because it's a slow news week. Nothing is going on except for Kim Kardashian naming her baby some bizarre name and and paula dean saying some uh, racially inappropriate things but other than that yeah shocking <laughs> <laughs> i am so surprised absolutely anyhow <clears throat> this the supermoon is really not a big deal uh, although it was a neat excuse for me to bring out my telescope the other night and uh point it on the moon which i haven't done in a long time and i put a, a high power scope on it and was just kind of checking out all craters and crevices and what have you and uh yeah, well, yeah, Eric, you fashion yourself as a pretty uh, strong astronomy enthusiast. Moderate, yes. Yeah. My father and brother significantly higher up than I am, but I am sure. I am. I am definitely the most amateur amateur astronomer in my family. Absolutely. Out of curiosity, Rick, are you also into astronomy? Or yeah, I actually, uh, I I have a wife and two kids. I actually bought a telescope, nice telescope for Christmas. So oh, great. Um, oh, what'd you get? I'm dying to check it out after uh, after we're done here. Check it out. Oh, Hopefully, nice. I'll see something weird. <laughs> All right. What uh, what did you pick up? You know what? Honestly, I don't know off the top of my head. <laughs> oh, no worries. Yeah, I've got a little 8-inch Dobsonian, which is kind of nice. It's a nice little telescope. My brother actually hand-built it, and it's kind of my hand-me-down now that he's got this real nice Celestron with, you know, you, it's got the remote control, and you just kind of input everything. It does it all for you. That's boring, though. I like to be able to actually, you know, star hop and be able to, to do it the good old-fashioned way. You know, You're the kind cheap. of guy who would prefer a manual transmission over an automatic. That is not true at all, but <laughs> I prefer a manual <laughs> telescope over an automatic one. There you go. I will say, though, Rick, like yourself, I also have a wife and two kids. And uh, how old are your kids? Uh, my daughter is four and my son's three. Oh, okay. Excellent. Very close in age, then. I've got uh, I've got a five-year-old and a soon-to-be seven-year-old, so they're about 18 oh. months apart. Yeah. Okay, nice. Excellent. It's a fatherly podcast tonight. Yes. We yeah. even had Father John mentioned. It's true. Come on, Brian. you got some work to do. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Jeez, I feel the single man out, literally. <laughs> um, well, anyhow, 
obviously, uh, let's get to the topic. Let's get to what we yeah. want to talk about. And it has very much to do, Rick, with, uh, with what you do as a profession, with what your, uh, what your life is. And obviously, the, the subject is comic books, if you haven't figured it out already, listeners. But, uh, Rick, tell me real quick, what got you into comic books? What was your in? What was your start? Well, early 80s was when I was growing up, and my brother and I would always just go to the local comic shop and you know, pick something up. And uh, my brother's an artist, and I was always the guy who told the stories. So I, we would buy an issue, and he would look at it for the pictures, and I would look at it for the story. So we've been huge Marvel and DC fans, and then we, we didn't get into the independent stuff until later, but that kind of got us into thinking, you know, maybe we should try something. And I had some books published, novels. So uh, we got into the, the comic industry, and here we are a couple years later, and it's it's getting bigger each year. So that's great. Thank you. Yeah, that's that's so awesome. I think if anybody can make a living at being creative uh, and doing what they love, that is like the ideal life, you know. And I'm sure you're, it's making you very happy. Yeah, and it, it's you know what that's part of what we do. We try to get independent artists' names out there. So you know, it's right now it's not a paying gig for anybody, but at least we can get some talent out there for other people to see. Well, that's, that's great. great. Yeah. yeah. We just nerd jinxed ourselves. You realize that? They said the exact same thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, that, that's fantastic. You said you do this with your brother. Yeah. And is he still your, your primary artist or the artist on, on one or more of your books? He's kind of the lead consultant. We uh, The way it's arranged, each graphic novel has 10 short stories. Hmm. So we get a different artist for each short story. So it's typically got 10 to 11 artists per graphic novel. That is very cool. I like the way you do that. That's awesome. Yeah, um, you can check us out at uh, scriptcomics.com. It's script, uh, S-C-R-Y-P-T, comics.com. All right. There you go. Yeah, my introduction to comic books was in the public library. Uh, my father was very much against comic books as literature. I'm doing air quotes. He didn't feel that they, uh, they quite met the criteria that I, as a young Brickmont, should be reading, which is ironic because he was introduced to comic books when they like literally came out. <laughs> He's been around for a while. Yeah. Uh, and he has some really old like Donald Duck comics from back in the 1940s uh, yeah. that he's held on to over the years that he got when he was a kid. So, you know, when I was a kid, uh, I, I never really had too much of an introduction to comic books besides the library. Uh, so I never, I never really got too much into it. I was definitely into X Men because I had the TV series that I could, I could watch every Saturday morning, and that got me into collecting comic cards. Uh, but I never quite got into comic books. I started collecting some of the Star Trek comic books that DC put out back in the late '80s, early '90s. Uh, that didn't last too long. I've got a couple of remnants here in the Nerd Cave. Uh, but what's interesting is really the past, let's see, about two years ago is when I started getting more into comic books, namely The Walking Dead, which I nice. absolutely hands down love. And I remember getting my hands on the digital editions and watching them or reading them on my iPad. And I say watching as a bit of a slip of the tongue, but in reality, that's what it felt like. It felt like I was so engrossed by like the most captivating movie I could watch that I just kept reading, reading. And before I realized it, you know, two or three hours had gone by and I'd been through a couple of the books and it was just, wow, really so captivating. So how, how do you feel about the, uh, the, the Walking Dead series? Oh, oh, I, I think it's great. I love that they went a different route with it. I love that they 
they are essentially telling the story that uh, they could have told through the comic books, but they didn't. It's almost kind of like a alternate reality. And uh, I have a, a deep appreciation for that. I think the actors they have on the show really portray the parts in the ways that uh, they imagine them in a good way. I don't feel like there's a single character, except for maybe Andrea's character, that kind of bothers me in the way that the change was made. Uh, Andrea is so much more dominant and uh, strong-willed in the comic book. I feel like the Andrea of the TV show tries to do that, but tries and fails. And I don't know if that's the intent that they're trying to go with, or if it's just the way that this actress portrays the character. But um, that would be my only only hang-up if I had one. How about you, sir? That's pretty much the same feeling I have. I mean, I haven't read too much Walking Dead. I did see the original graphic novel. Uh, my brother had a copy of it. And, yeah, I mean, I, I've loved the series. But, yeah, I feel the same way about Andrea. It's a shame. I, I feel like the Andrea of the comic book was strong. But you know what? That's okay because they all kind of have their own place in that universe and they all work. And in the end, it's a great show. And I'll keep on watching for as long as they want to go with it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. My entryway into comic books was through... No, other multimedia. I think it was the Batman TV show with Adam West being in reruns. And then all the movies, Lois and Clark, the TV show, as we've talked about ad nauseum in my film podcast. (laughs) And then it took about, you know, I started getting a glimmer of it when kind of a similar similar situation. We would go to comic book shops. My brother would want to go get hockey cards, but uh, my dad would get me a comic book or two. And it was Batman. uh, And it was really, really, to me, weird as a kid watching the, the Adam West TV show. And reading the Batman comic books in the late 80s, because it's a very different Batman you see in both versions of it. And like, well, why is Robin different? Why is Robin, you know, look all... And then I, I kind of had... I didn't even know it wasn't the same Robin, I, I, it, because they never mentioned... Uh, and then I saw the name Tim, and I was like, wait, who's Tim? And then <laughs> it, I had to do some back work. But reading lots of great graphic novels, I remember reading the... I can't remember what it was called, but it was, uh, it was post-Death in the Family. It was, the, it was basically the whole story of how Tim Drake became the third Robin. Uh, that was a great graphic novel. Uh, Death of Superman, obviously, was unbelievable in the early 90s to that read. That was 92, wasn't it? 92, 93. One yeah. of those two years, yeah. And then what I found is that this is impossible to keep up with and not spend an arm and a leg. So what I've ended up doing is I've ended up curating information about comic book mythology so that I can keep up with what's going on. And then I'll have the occasional indulge into a comic book. Um, so why don't we take a step back, though, and figure out, well, where does this media start because you know there's a lot of interesting story here the perception of comic books has changed dramatically in the last 20 years and where does it really have its start i mean you could argue that its start takes place in ancient history with just the idea of pictographs telling stories right like with the famous cave painting of the bull in france you could also argue the frescoes of the ancient egyptians using their visuals to tell stories even even early christianity or in the Roman and Greek uh, empires where you've got frescoes that explain, that kind of set a tableau of what's going on, right? Yeah, I mean, you, this is not a new idea. This has been around since the birth of civilization and since before that, since we started creating images to convey ideas and messages. And storytelling was a natural component to that because pre-written language or to a society that's predominantly illiterate, that is the only way to get information across to them is through these these images. Yeah, visual storytelling, essentially. Visual storytelling. It is, it is an aspect of pretty much every culture around the globe in one way or another. Even the Aborigines of Australia, you know, they've been doing this for, for tens of thousands of years. So they, they predate just about everybody uh, in, this, in this pictographic storytelling. But we have to really define what a comic 
is. Right, right. right. Because, yeah, we can throw it into that general group, but we want to get very specific to what we're actually talking about, which is kind of a a very intentional, sequential storytelling on a on a small piece of portable medium that is meant to be distributed to a larger group of people. That's kind of my So, in other words, definition. print media. Right. Print media, yeah. Yeah, exactly. This little document I found called The Brief History of, of Comic Books by John Petty, it's about 25 pages, it's very, very light, but it talks about there is some speculation that broadsheets from the late 16th century, which are essentially what you're talking about, you know, illustrations with stories... Um, would be the first comic books, but really what everyone kind of agrees on was from 1895, uh, which was The Yellow Kid, and it was uh, from New York World Magazine, and it was literally just the antics of a kid who dressed in yellow. There's also a, uh, in 1793, William Blake published something called uh, The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, and they consider that kind of the precursor to the modern graphic novel, um, I did find that. And actually, there's, there's copies on Amazon that I'm kind of interested in checking out now. But I believe the way he did it was he told a story and then he had some pictures with it that he had hand-drawn. So I love this semantical shift because when we think of comic books now, you know, most of them aren't funny. I mean, they may be funny if you're like reading Deadpool, but not in the traditional sense of the word like where it was originally derived from, which was to be little, these little humorous almost cartoon-like, but I think I like graphic novel better. I would even go as far as to say graphic literature, because novel sound implies long-form storytelling, but since most comic books are, you know, maybe 20 pages now, uh, literature, I think, is much more flexible, because literature can include short stories as well. Well, we talked about this earlier, and I think of literature being more overall encompassing, and I do agree with that, that term, but I still think, you know, within literature, we write books. And we write novels, and I feel like the, the current terminology fits it as, as best as you can, really, to the genre, at least in my opinion. Yeah, and I like that the name changed because it gave it a bit more legitimacy. Not that it was illegitimate to begin with, but when you hear the term graphic novel, there's a greater mystique to it than comic book. Well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, to me, yes, certainly uh, Richard Outcult's Yellow Kid uh, was definitely the the precursor to American comics and American comic strips. Uh, but I, I really feel like jumping back further into Japan is really uh, in very much uh, a ways of reflecting its origins. I mean, I, origin implies also that it has a natural progression, and I'm not saying that, that Japan directly influenced the American comic books or the European comic books. I think they all kind of developed independently. It's a cross-cultural parallel. Development. There you go. We like to say on Nerds on History. (laughs) Uh, It very much is. And then over in Europe, you know, you have uh, Rodolf Topher's Hystere de Monsieur. And that was back in 1830. And this had one of the first times that you saw these sequential images actually being accompanying by text. Text that was written underneath, not in the, uh, the kind of speech bubble form that you would find later in Europe actually developing about 50, 60 years later uh, before you ever see it being used in America. But, you know, there's all these other little tidbits that kind of lead to these origins of it. You know, even the first manga in Japan, uh, manga being a word meaning uh, whimsical images or random images, were these satirical little depictions of some political uh, event that was going on in the country at the time or, or something that was culturally significant to the people there that was intended for easy reading for people who weren't essentially the upper-class elite, for folks who needed to have, if you will, that that image to kind of move the story along and, and move the words along for them. A lot of the iconic imagery that you find with comic books, like um, 
oh, kind of like like speed lines, you know, like movement lines and things of that nature, yeah. have their origins in 19th century mangas of Japan. So it, it's all over the place, really, in terms of its origins. But I feel the one country that has really exploded in its terms of taking the media, running with it, and creating a real industry out of it, I feel America kind of takes the, the top cake on that. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, America's dominated in that field, and they've really kind of morphed it into the medium that it is today. Yeah. I mean, even post-World War II, Japan had this huge influx of American comic books coming over, which changed the whole style and distribution of manga into its current form right now. Well, World War II was kind of like the breakout era for American comic books in general, I think. I mean, they started in the 30s, but, you know, World War II, the whole the whole movement there with American comics was just to get Pope across to the troops and to the families waiting for the people. So Absolutely. It was the best form of propaganda they could uh, could have formed because, you know, when you have Superman and Captain America all, you know, doing ads for war bonds, you know, the, <laughs> yeah. uh, the built into the stories of the comic books, or you have the iconic image of Captain America punching Hitler in the face. And, uh, you know, I think Superman probably had a similar circumstance. I think everybody punched Hitler in the face back then. Exactly. Uh, (laughs) Can't help but inspire you and motivate you and bring everyone together. But before we even get to the 1940s, though, I think there's some really interesting major characters, I think, that are precursors to who we think of as the the common superheroes that we would see in comic books. Because obviously the majority of comic book fare out there right now is, in fact superheroic in nature yeah Um, thankfully with the independent comic movement there's been a lot of great stories that don't necessarily involve superheroes but um i mean obviously those costume characters they they all kind of have a an origin of some kind right there's some sort of what's the word i'm looking for catalyst catalyst or impetus i think is the word i'm looking for oh i'm so sorry you know they have medication for that (laughs) jesus so rick i'm curious from your take, who is the first superhero? Because there's a lot of people who contend for it. I would think Superman, but you know, before him, there was kind of like the Phantom and Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon. Dude, you have earned so much respect in my in my book. You you hit three <laughs> characters I was already thinking of. Uh, you're right. I mean, Buck Rogers. You know, Buck Rogers of the 25th century. Of course, we all know we don't really know of Buck Rogers now, but we know of Duck Dodgers of the 24th and the half century, <laughs> which was Warner Brothers' spoof on that. Yeah, I mean, his debut was in 1928 in the Amazing Stories comics, you know? Yeah. Uh, he was a featured character uh, created by Wilma Deerling and Dr. Elias uh, Hewer. And he would say, I would say, is definitely a good example of an early pulp-like hero, you know, an adventurer. Uh, same like Flash Gordon, too. Flash Gordon had a little bit later of, a, of an appearance in 1934. But they're both similar concepts, you know, they explore space. And yeah, they, they're, they're all very Wellsian in the way that they've developed, only they, they tell these stories, whereas Wells tells a very deep message. These are a lot more whimsical, a lot more fun, a lot more out there exploring and doing these things because uh, people would want to read about them, not because they have a, a deep right. underlying message yeah. behind them. I think when we're talking about comic books, I think you're hitting the button with The Phantom. Um, the, fun, the Phantom debuted in 1936, uh, pre- Superman and Batman, because Superman was 1938 and Batman was 1939. He's definitely got a defined alter ego. He's wearing a costume. He uh, is very much what we now conceive of as the model for a superhero. But he had his origins in other characters, though. Hmm. I would say the Phantom is pretty close in visual form to Zorro. Sure. Right? And Zorro was... We don't think of him as a comic book character, because truly he wasn't. I mean, he eventually became a comic book character. 
but he was a pulp hero originally. And no, the, a lot of these costumed characters came from pulp novels. So named because the material and paper that they were printed on was, was so cheap. Was yeah. so cheap. It was like yeah. reading it off a of pulp. Really. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and there's a couple characters we have to talk about, um, particularly the Shadow and Zorro. I think those are two major ones because uh, Zorro was really the modern Robin Hood. The idea of Don Diego de la Vega being this nobleman who saw injustice and then decided that he couldn't work within the rules of the law, so therefore he became an outlaw and put on the disguise of Zorro to bring about social change. That's Batman and Robin Hood. Pretty he's much he's a lot friendlier Pancho Villa. Yeah. <laughs> and the Zorro in the, the Curse of Capistrano, which was the original novel by Johnston McCulley, was pretty brutal. Like, he, he wouldn't kill people, but he would... You know, we all know of the Z being carved on people's, like, clothing. He carved it into their chest. He carved it in their chest or their forehead, yeah. exactly. Pretty effed up. It's pretty hardcore. <laughs> yeah. But, hey, he made an impression, that's for sure. And, then, of course, you can't not talk about the shadow either, because Orson Welles, of course brought the shadow home and the lamont cranston version of the shadow is the one that's the most popular but the shadow wasn't always that that character there really was no defined identity for the shadow he was a few different, different people and what's so interesting is an era before really the movies and television maybe the movies were just kind of starting with the with silent films and eventually into the talkies but it's certainly an era before television how these characters would translate from comic books into other media whereas today we would have movies and such was on radio Exactly. And, and pretty much every guy that you've mentioned, every character you've mentioned here, my father as a child grew up listening to a radio drama that was associated with it. That's true. It was pretty much in radio and in comics. Yeah, was, and, and there was their yeah. source material, was that yeah. comic book. And there's other characters we haven't talked about, like Little Orphan Annie, of course, right? It was both comic strip and radio show. And what I found, found really interesting is that the same person who also made The Phantom made another character called Mandrake the Magician. Hmm. You ever, ever heard of him? No. Yeah. Yeah. Rick knows what I'm talking about. Mandrake, the magician, is a is a coat and tails illusionist who fights crime. Sure, right? why not? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, did you ever read any of those? I, I haven't actually had a chance to read any of those. Uh... No, I would love to. I, you know, I I kind of I stumbled across that in the research, and I and I can't find any of them anywhere. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, it, it's it's pretty interesting. I find it fascinating because it's a, a point in time that we don't talk about anymore. Magic doesn't have the same connotation we have anymore. It's it's more like a Vegas thing you go see now. And the, a magician, you know, being a, more of a staple of, of a performance art at that time, I thought was, and also being a crime fighter was really fascinating. I can imagine him calling upon the power to summon bunnies. <laughs> and perhaps he has, a, he has a deck of cards that are razor sharp that, that admit or inflict terrible, terrible paper cuts. Uh, and of course, let's not forget the uh, the rings. Right. Of, of justice. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. There are obnoxious clanking noises enough to drive any, <laughs> any villain insane. Right. And then his wand turns into a uh, bouquet of flowers, but the flowers actually emit a small toxin that makes people fall asleep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I'm wonder, I'm wondering if DC took heavily upon that when they when they created like Zatara and Zatanna. No uh, doubt. No doubt. So yeah, Eric, I'm going to ask you a question. Oh, yay. Who also debuted with Superman in Action Comics number one? You're asking me? So I should know this, in other words. Oh, God. The answer Um, actually is, it's Zatara. Zatara was the other character. Like I said. Oh, really? Yeah. Most people don't know that. He was the back page story. He was the quick story after the main story. Rick. Rick. So you'd know that if you didn't light it on fire in the beginning of the episode. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, God. Uh, Rick, enlighten me. I, I don't know anything about Zatara. 
you know who Zatanna is, right? No, I have no idea. No, she's basically the the magician of DC Comics. She's kind of like a weaker version of Doctor Strange. She okay. really goes on stage magic and everything. But hmm. Zatara was her father. He was the original one that was introduced back in I, I don't know what year he was introduced, but you know, thirty eight. Oh well, yeah, okay, Action Comics. So um, I, I don't get it then. Are, are they heroes like the Mandrake, or were they uh, villains? No, they, they were they were heroes. Um, Zatara is a superhero who was a stage magician, and he stumbled across. He somehow was able to acquire one of Leonardo da Vinci's uh, books, and we all know da Vinci was famous for writing backwards, yeah. right? So what he found out is when reading something backwards, I think he read like the arm moves to the left, and there was uh, a mannequin he had, and its arm moved on its own. It's like what the hell? And so he figured out the key to magical incantation was to say all your commands backwards. Right. Mm. So he had to master reverse English. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and basically, Zatanna is his daughter. So Zatanna learned all of her skills from Zatara. They both kind of have a top hat and tails image that you see, but yeah. they, they're both pretty powerful magicians. So, Rick, is this the golden age of comics that we're talking about? Because I hear, I hear that phrase thrown around, and I think myself, maybe some of our listeners just don't really know what these ages are. Maybe you can kind of enlighten us on that. That's probably more of a question for Brian. I mean, I know there's the, the golden age was, was the golden age was first, right, Brian? Yeah, the golden age was really what we're talking about. The, the late thirties through the 30s, mid thirties, more mid forties, right? Mid forties, maybe even up to early nineteen fifty, I would say. Okay. Okay. Yeah, and then they, they had the silver and copper and modern age. Yeah. You know. Why are we going backwards? In in metal, you mean? Yeah. Have they already decided that comics from that point forward would just be immediately devalued? I mean, what does what does that mean? <laughs> I don't quite know. Wouldn't I'm you not... Wouldn't you start with copper and then go bronze and then other more valuable materials? I mean, that's how they did it in history. I guess so. Well, well bronze age is what's considered pretty much around the nineties, uh, and then I think uh, modern age, I guess, is whatever the current phases of comic books they consider the modern age and then when they define a new that well that's changed this is the new modern age and that was the probably going to be the 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 zinc phase at some point <laughs> zinc phase. <laughs> the zinc age and then the clay phase <laughs> exactly <laughs> the bottom strata phase yeah um so does that mean that like everything that came before is like the platinum phase well i think it's really a, a, a compliment you know you're paying testament to what came before you true right I mean, that's not not the definitive answer as to why, but to me, that's what hmm. plays back in my Interesting. mind. Interesting. The Golden Age of comic books was so great because, you know, it was a, an age where anybody could be a superhero. Yeah. And anybody was a superhero at that point. And it's so fascinating because just before that, I mean, really just 20, 20 years before that, comic books were designed to be exactly that, comical. They were comic strips, right? They, they hadn't quite developed into full books yet. That didn't come about until, what, the 1920s, I believe. Uh, uh- Thirty-three, they started really getting into famous funnies. They would take all the Sunday like papers and just wrap them into one compilation. Yeah, I mean, that's th- and that's exactly this is the whole idea, right? Is that they're meant to be comical and amusing, and then they became more inspirational. And it's and it's fascinating because you just watch the socio-political cultural changes that occur not just in the United States but the entire world, and they mirror all these different phases in comic books. And to me, as a as a historian and from an anthropological perspective, that is the most valuable thing about comic books, that future generations will look back on this and they'll look back on it as a testament to what was going on at that time, as like right. a snapshot to the cultural mindset of the countries that those 
those comic books developed in. And when you were talking about World War II kind of being that heyday for comic books, there was this huge explosion with them because people were trying to find something that they they wanted to see in themselves, some kind of inspiration, some kind of hope. I find it so interesting that just immediately preceding that, when the television has its huge boom, comic books go in this downward slope. And they have this difficult period in that so-called Silver Age, I guess you'd call it, which is what, from the 50s to the 70s then? 50s to, I think, 70s or 80s, yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. so so that's well, a period... Well, during that time, there was a lot of, especially when, like what you're saying with the television, a lot of that, that downslope of comics, I think, was a lot... To, there was a lot of controversy involved with... Like, you know, nowadays, people are complaining about the violence in video games. Well, back then, it was the violence in comic books, and they were really concerned about what children were reading when a lot of these comics like tales from the crypt were originally geared toward an adult audience right absolutely Um, and like the pulp novels that they used to have in the 20s and 30s were absolutely horrid like you hear about people being beheaded and you know uh, rape and murder and uh, all these horrible things which is um why the comics code authority was formed in the 1950s they were Mm. really the first they're kind of what the mpaa is to hollywood now they they were a a group of publishers who imposed censorship on themselves so like there were certain rules now about nudity that you couldn't do certain Mm -hmm. rules about violence and you could argue that's what kind of brightened up batman too because batman had this long-standing reputation of being a dark brooding hero even as early back as in in his form in the 30s and then when the comics code authority uh, was developed and let me actually get the year for that real quick i believe it was 1954 1954 yeah well a little bit before that too in the 40s but no, that was kind of why Batman became kind of the smiley Batman that we saw that was really the, the parody that we saw in Adam West. The kapow, kaflunk Batman, as I like to call him. Exactly, exactly. And a lot of that also had to do with a book called Seduction of the Innocent, uh, which was mm. written by Frederick Wortham, yeah. who is a, supposedly a medical doctor, and he was writing this whole book about how comics were a negative influence on America's youth. And what was really shocking is that actually the man was just nuts. He himself <laughs> was just totally nuts and was making outrageous claims. Um, Stan Lee talks about Frederick Wortham in uh, one of his Fat Man on Batman episodes that he guest starred with Kevin Smith. Uh, check it out if you can. Uh, great insight into the early days of comic books. Uh, mm-hmm. Stan Lee, the creator, of course, of Spider-Man, as well as many other characters, was friends with Bob Kane. And Bob Kane was con- is widely considered the creator of Batman, huh. um, though there was also Bill Finger, but that's a whole other that's a whole other episode talking about that. Um, Seduction of the Innocent, you know, made all these claims that like Batman, he was the first person to claim that Batman and Robin's relationship was homoerotic. <laughs> like all that comes from from Frederick Wortham. I've never even heard that before. You yeah. know, I think there's actually video of uh, Frederick Wortham on. Uh, I think you can find it on YouTube. It was definitely on a documentary I watched, but it's you know it's really old footage, obviously, but. It was him going off about all of the problems he had with comics. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it, it mirrors almost exactly the same argument that's being made about video games today. You right. Know, it, it's, a, it's a medium that children are introduced to at a very young age. It is something that is cross-platform, so to speak, for adults and kids, right? So it, it's intended for both mm-hmm. audiences. And it is something that does feature violence as, as a narrative, as a way of moving along the story right. or point to it. Uh, and the same exact argument was made about movies. Yeah. The same exact argument was made about rock music. The same argument was made against anything 
that was uh, that was different, really. Yeah. And there was so much of a call in like the fifties for kids to put down comic books and pick up the Bible and read that instead. When you look yeah. at the Bible, it's one of the most violent stories that's out there. Sure. I can see a bunch of kids running around, you know, playing uh, let's sack Jerusalem, you know, or something like that. It, it was going to be the same thing. It was just stone different the adulterer. Stone, stone the, the adulterer. adulterer. Um, I think we have our episode title. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what really bothers me about Wortham is that he falsified information to make his claims. One of the things he did is he sampled adolescents from troubled backgrounds in New York City who already were having behavior disorders, and that was his primary sample for the influence of comic books. And you know, any scientist would say, say, modern sociologist would say today, well, where's the sample of the average people, right? You need to have a reflective sample of, of our modern society. And inside of that, he just sometimes just made stuff up, too. He invented studies that he used to reference for his book, and people bought it. That's what's so so saddening. Yeah, well, he uh, thought he was it. doing a good thing. He thought he was actually improving American culture. Yeah. Well, interestingly enough, somewhere, Stan Lee actually had a had an old-style, like, Oxford debate with Wortham. At, I think, actually, it might have even been at Harvard, if, if I'm not mistaken. But, but look at what's going on in the country at this time, right? We're just coming out of the Second World War. We're coming out of a, a period of extreme economic depression. There is poverty wide-scale around the United States. People are going hungry. People are not being given an opportunity to have an education, and you have the the furthest division between a middle class and an upper class that's ever existed in America, and you have this whole realm of people who are essentially poor and down on their luck. You can see it in even comics like Orphan, Little Orphan Annie and what have you. That, that culture is, is there. And there was this fear that if we gave up the written word as it had existed for so long, as it had been so well relished, that that aspect of our culture would be lost. And so some of these people who obviously took it to the extreme um, didn't quite get what was going on. They didn't see the true value behind comic books. They interpreted it as being a dumbing down of the English literature yeah, and therefore a detriment to society, when in reality it was a whole new form of artistic expression that really wasn't new. Yeah. We were taking old right. ideas and we were making them current. We yeah. were making them very entertaining, and the exact opposite. We were encouraging children to read. Because yeah. here they had these short little stories that were full of fun pictures, but when they realized that the written word had so much value behind it, I think a lot of kids who like comic books went out later and actually started, you know, yeah. reading because of it. And there was such a stigma behind it, too, because I remember hearing so many people who uh, who were around in the 50s and 60s reading comic books. It was all a closeted situation. Like, you never admitted that you read comics, but everyone knew that you read comics amongst your own friends. But it was also a stigma to even say that you worked on comic books. Stan Lee talked about how he would, when he would go to parties, he... They ask, well, what do you do? And he said, well, I'm a writer. And then he would just kind of try to change the conversation yeah. away. And then they keep asking the question, well, what do you write? Oh, I write for a magazine. Oh, what, what magazine? Right, well, Stan Lee actually tried to get out of the comic business for a while. Um, and it wasn't until they just, his wife actually turned him back onto it and said, no, you got to keep doing what you want to do, but write your own. Hmm. And, I, and that's what kind of kept him going because he thought he was too grown up for it at that point. You know? Yeah. And uh, what I find really interesting about this whole time period is that the comics we're talking about in the 1950s and 40s, this is grossly dominated by um, by DC, which, of course, stands for Detective Comics, was originally National uh, oh, I didn't know that. Publish, Ally to Publishing. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. These are all characters who were dominating in the early 50s. I mean, there were still uh, no other characters, like the Fawcett comics, like Captain Marvel, 
and Superman were both kind of the two competing titles for it. And now were there still characters going on in Marvel? Marvel had its major start. Marvel Comics was started in 1941. Now you had characters, very early characters like Captain America, Submariner. We now know him just as Namor today, but he was a Submariner. Justice League. Don't forget the Justice League. Justice League was was Justice DC. Society, right? Justice Society was the original one, exactly. Um, Justice League wasn't until the 1960s. Oh. Uh, I think, Brian, I think uh, Marvel, didn't they start as timely comics, though, in 39? They didn't become Marvel to 41, I think, like oh, you said. Oh, you're, you're right. There was a comic that they published called Marvel Comics, but not the company itself. Right. So you're right. Timely Comics was the original name. You're 100% correct there. Uh, and they they kind of had, in the 1950s, I wouldn't say a lull period, but kind of, because their golden age was kind of DC's silver age. I think their golden age was really when you got to, like, Fantastic Four and Spider-Man and the Hulk and the Avengers and all those iconic names when we think of Marvel comic books. Do you agree, or do you think it goes earlier? Oh, yeah, than that? absolutely. That's about the, the time. And that's, like I said, that's about the time that uh, Stan Lee kind of got back into it with, you know, Jack Kirby and everything. Right. And what was really fascinating is how we saw the shift in writing change. Because when with DC, you've got, you've always had, and this is one of the greatest criticisms of DC, is it's kind of this very plot or centered storyline. The character development was kind of minor. Like, Superman never grew, necessarily. He was always going to be the strong guy who was in love with Lois Lane, but Lois Lane was never in love with him, he was always in love with Superman. And that was just kind of very cyclical. It never, it never mm. developed beyond that, right? When you get to Fantastic Four and you get to Spider-Man and the Avengers and so forth, Stan Lee started making comic books much more character-focused. Hmm. You know, you've got this interesting dynamic of the fact that the Fantastic Four, you know, Sue Storm, the Invisible Woman, and Richard Reed, uh, Reed sorry, Reed Richards, uh, Mr. Fantastic, are a married couple. Right. Right. And that her younger, younger brother and his friend Ben are all living together in the same space and they're also superhero team oh come on it was the 1960s right. they're, they're Everybody essentially was a family exactly and that's yeah. why they're argued the first superhero family when you start to bring in those family dynamics it makes it much more real it brings home this whole idea of stronger narrative because you're making it about characters who yes they have these superpowers but they're really just like us in addition to having to save the world they have other problems too well what gets me mm-hmm. about this era is that you know whereas in the 1940s and 50s it was all about it reinforcing American patriotism in comic books. Now in the 1960s and 70s, it was about, holy crap, maybe America isn't the superpower that we thought it was. Maybe some of the things that are going on in the world that we're involved in are not really the best things in the world, i.e. the Vietnam War. And then you have whole situations like Captain America, who, you know, ends up a, a, essentially abandoning his identity in protest to the, the so-called secret empire, which was this whole storyline that almost exactly mirrors the whole Watergate fiasco. Yeah, Oh, so that's when he became Nomad, right? The man without a country, right? Oh, that is just so... That, for me, is what is so cool about comic books. And that, and like I said earlier in the episode, that is the reason why people will look back on comic books in the future and give it a much closer attention than they ever have in the, in the current time, now even, because it will be so telling of who we are as a society. Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of what what straight you know what kind of got everybody away from that comics code that you were talking about was Mad Magazine started doing spoofs of everything too you know so even though they're not really considered a comic book I mean they they spoofed all the original comics including the ones that were banned so that kind of brought that whole you know what you're talking about with the the modern age and the war protesting and everything it brought all that into light too so that kind of strayed away from that comics code and they started going more toward 
that superhero feel that Stan Lee introduced. Absolutely. And I would consider Mad Magazine absolutely a comic book because, I mean, in the truest sense of the form, right? Because it is yeah. it is a yeah. parody of what is already out there. And I remember the ones that the thought was the, I don't know if this is Mad, I'm pretty sure it is, is Spider-Ham at all. <laughs> Spider-Ham was his spoof of Spider-Man, and it was if Peter Parker was a pig, so he's Peter Porker. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I think Marvel ended up buying that at one point. Did they? Because I remember seeing that when I was a kid, and I'm talking probably 85 or 86, I remember seeing him in a couple Marvel comics. Issues. Right, they, were, they made like some sort of animal kinda, universe. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of cool that we get to, you know, that there are comics that will not take themselves too seriously. A big character who's like that in the current age is is Deadpool. Deadpool is, for those who do not know Marvel Comics... Wait, I'm sorry, Deadpool's a pig? No. Sorry, I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> okay. Go ahead. So Deadpool, for those uh, who don't read Marvel Comics, is a mutant who... Um, was it they... He had cancer, and they, they did some... Ex- he was part of the Weapon X program, and they cured the cancer, but they also made him totally insane. And, you know, he's just this total loose cannon assassin for hire... And eventually it got to a point where um, where Loki, who you would know from the Thor movies, um, told him he was a comic book character. Flat out just broke it to him and said, he, you're not actually real. You're a fictional character. Um, oh, man, that is messed up. But it's hilarious now because he breaks the fourth wall all the time in his uh, own yeah. series. What does that mean? I don't know what that means. So the fourth wall is, uh, it's a theater term. It's the invisible wall between the world of uh, the, the content and the world of the audience. Breaking the fourth wall is like when you look at the camera and you talk to the camera as if oh, they're okay. a character in the room. Mel Brooks says that all the time. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mel Brooks breaks yeah. the fourth wall. He knows he's he knows he's not a real character. Right. Yeah. And, oh, okay. That's and, cool. And thusly makes lots of jokes around that, and uh, occasionally will just like make comments to the writer and, and everything. That is pretty cool. I, I see, like I said, my comic book knowledge is is far inferior to the experts in the room. So I bow to you. I bow to you. <laughs> um, that is that is very cool. I had no idea. Yeah. Totally. It's great that they ruined it in a movie, then. That's just wonderful. Thank <laughs> yeah. you. Yeah. Wait, Don't get me started on that. Oh, <laughs> Thank you, Ryan Reynolds. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, w- it wasn't his fault. I mean, he was given no, the script. No, I actually think he was a perfect pick for Deadpool. Yeah. It was the writing that, I did, you know, that messed that character up. But that, hopefully, uh, I think Tuesday, they're releasing the Deadpool game for Xbox. So hopefully that'll uh, hmm. correct a lot of that. Is he the voice of Deadpool? Did they get Reynolds to do it again? I have no idea, actually. Oh, okay. I don't know. Okay. Well, you know, as we're traveling through these ages, so to speak, let, let's let's jump into the Bronze Age for a moment, which I'm usually very comfortable talking about in the actual sense of the historic Bronze Age, but not, <laughs> not the comic book Bronze Age. In the history age. of metallurgy, yes. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but, for okay, so the website that I have, and I know this is all hotly contested and what have you, but that puts it from the 70s through the early 80s, is essentially, is the Bronze Age. I wouldn't disagree with that, because there's a lot of... Pretty much you define those ages when characters begin to change. They yeah. can begin to be redefined for their current time periods. But from my research, I mean, what, what really set this time period apart was the emphasis now on style, the emphasis now on the art, and taking the art to a, to a new level. Because for a long time, the art had been considered to be secondary to the actual story that was being told. Right. Uh, the inclusion of color... Uh, full color, not just four color or what have you, which was very common. It was cheap and easy to print, right? That was that was now becoming more the norm. And yeah. now taking a much more stylized approach to comic book art and really calling upon artists to show what they can do and how they can be unique and how they can be different was really starting to come out in the 70s and 80s. Right. And I think that that instinctively transitions comic books for everybody. 
that in particular makes them, I think, a lot more available to an adult crowd because now you have, you know, adults wanting to really tell their story through their art and reach a different crowd that encourages, I, I would think, anyhow, for them to write more adult stories. Sure. Right. It also sets a standard for the artists involved, too, because when you start printing on different paper and everything and get that full color in there, you know, it kind of sets a standard where, I mean, there's exceptions, you know, Walking Dead, they did black and white. You know, but it worked really well, and it you know it kind of just ups the ante for what appropriate art is or what you know the standard is for art. And you know, I so appreciate what The Walking Dead does because they take an amazing cover. They always have an, an absolutely breathtaking, amazing cover that is usually very much um, infused with color and and lots of deep shading and lots of very vibrant um, images. And then they jump right back into the black and white. And it feels just like a Romaro movie. You know, it feels just like a zombie movie that I would be watching. Uh, and it, it's perfect. It, it translates perfectly to what they're trying to, to, to the story that they're trying to tell. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Well, in the Iron Age, I guess is what we're, what we're talking about. That's when things really started to shake up because... You've got, I mean, by this point in time, DC is dealing with a big rewrite, a big reset button with Crisis on Infinite Earths, uh, where they're trying to deal with all this complex continuity that they've uh, they've built up with several different entire Earths. Like, there's an Earth 2 where Superman is can't this, fly, but he can still leap tall bound. Is uh, this the Bizarro universe? No. Ah, damn it. When the, the hell are we going to get to the Bizarro universe? <laughs> yeah. Bizarro is just kind of like this one, it's literally just a planet. It's a cubic planet in the universe where all the Bizarros live. Never mind the physics behind that, because it's not physically yeah, possible for a planet to be cubic. how the hell do you get... Wait, how do you travel by sea or land if you encounter one of the edges of the cube? Well, yeah, speaking of physics, you guys got... If you haven't checked it out, you got to check out... Uh, it's a novel called The Physics of Superheroes. Hmm. Uh, it's by James Cacalios or something. I don't even know if I'm spelling his name right, saying his name right. But he basically goes into how superheroes could or could not work in our real world based on physics. So, like, how much fuel, how much food the Flash would have to eat in order to run as much as he does and as fast as he does. And the physics behind leaping a tall building and stuff like that is really cool. I know you guys like to read. You might want to check it out. That sure. sounds awesome. And I'm wondering if it's the same author who wrote The Physics of Star Trek, which is one of my favorite books. I really, I, I'll have to check it out. I don't remember. Um, I gotta check team. that out too. I, I'm a big Star Trek fan, so I, I'd like to check that out. Oh, sir, you have a friend in me forever. Then uh, <laughs> I am. I am a hardcore Trekkie. Um, I know. <laughs> and now I'm not too hot on what was going on at Marvel in the early '80s. Rick, do you know how much do you know about that? With Marvel in the early '80s, yeah, because we know in the early '80s with DC, we're dealing with a lot of uh, changes to how Superman functions, how Batman functions. Batman's gone back to his much darker roots. Uh, thanks to characters like uh, artists like Danny O'Neill and Neil Adams writing, you know, you got to see Ra's al Ghul finally. Uh, you got to see callbacks to darker villains come up. Yeah. But in Marvel, I mean, I just I'm kind of a little fuzzy on that. So. Well, one of one of I was born in '78, so the earliest storyline that I remember, and it was from the early '80s, was um, it was called the Secret Wars, and it oh. was the first thing I it was the first epic thing that i remember from marvel and it, they basically there was this being that teamed up all of the heroes you wanted to see work together and all the villains and he tried to pit them against each other and for some reason magneto was teamed with the with the heroes but it worked really well and it, you know it was all all the egos were kind of bouncing off each other so that that lasted for 
I think, 12 issues, and I think they were doing an issue a month. And then after that, it did so well that they went into Secret Wars 2, which didn't do as well. But that was kind of, I think they were really working on their team-ups at that point and trying to make it more of a shared universe, kind of like the movies are doing now. Right. And you could argue that they were doing this in response to a decline in in sales, right? Yeah. Because starting with the 1970s and into the 1980s, uh, comic books started hitting a pretty major decline. Uh, n- not to the point where they were considering bankruptcy, but to the point where it was a far cry from what they were used to be selling. You know, th- th- you're talking about going from millions of, co- of copies sold to in the hundreds of thousands. And now it's like, I think, I mean, you know this better, but I think for like a major a major line, it's if it hits 100,000, it's really good. But more than likely, it's like 50,000 is what you're, you're, you're going to get for copies sold, right? Right. No, not my case yet. But <laughs> yeah, one day soon. But yeah. for, but for average comic book sales, yeah. yeah. And what is also interesting is that in the mid '80s is when you really start to see, you know, you have the powerhouses of DC and Marvel, but then you also start to see independent comic books, right? And right. this is something that I mean, if it wasn't for people like Dark Horse Comics and Image Comics, yeah, Rick, you wouldn't necessarily be able to do what you're doing right now, right? Because it right. would have been so unheard of. These are the pioneers. Right. I mean, they also started doing a lot of. Um, I know, I know, they did it in the '60s um, once or twice, like with Superman and Spider-Man being crossover. But they did a lot of intercompany crossovers in the '80s and '90s. And there's actually, I, I can't wait to introduce it to my son when he's a little older. But they had a four-issue miniseries of DC versus Marvel, uh, and I think it was in '96. Or are you familiar with it, Brian? I am, and it was a, a huge mashup. So you had like the Hulk fighting Superman and yeah. see which one was who was stronger because fans have been arguing about this for years <laughs> oh Hulk could totally take Superman no Superman comes to freaking planet you know you, 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 and so you got to see like who was the stronger one I think Batman fought Wolverine at, at some point or yeah. yeah they did fight and it was based they actually took a poll for DC and Marvel fans to see who would win the battle and it, it was actually the storyline went according to how people voted and marvel put five battles up and marvel won three out of the five but Mm. in the storyline they kind of made it an even thing and it it basically after those four issues they kind of merged the universes and they had an amalgamated universe so they that's right had the dark claw dark claw yeah combination of batman and wolverine and (laughs) yeah it was logan wayne yeah yeah. Yeah, and, and it was. Uh, I think Super Soldier was Superman and Captain America. It was. It was cool. I have them too. They're, yeah. They're worth checking out, just you know, for fanboy purposes. But I think somewhere in my collection, I have Spider Boy number one, which was Peter Parker. <laughs> uh, so Superboy, we normally conceive of him as um, as the child Superman. In the '90s, with the post death of Superman, the world without a Superman storyline, when the world's trying to adjust to there not being you know, a protector four pretenders basically okay. appear and one of them is a is a, who they call Superboy but he hated being called that he was basically a teenage version of Superman uh, turns out he actually he wasn't he was a clone uh, of Superman and some other buddy's DNA um, so he and was the one who merged with Peter Parker and then created Spider-Boy is what they is what they call it um, and his costume looked very much like a, a mix between Superboy from the 90s and the Peter Parker Spider-Man uh, outfit. I just have to say, I know that the title of this show is Nerds on History, and we belong to the Nerdonomy Network, but I had no idea you were this big of a comic book nerd. <laughs> oh, yeah, dude. I, I, I count you as my best friend, and I had no idea 
that you were this big of a, of a comic book nerd. Why are there not more comic books in the nerd cave then? Well, because the thing is, I don't actually own that many comic books. I read up on comic books. And I got to admit, in my early 20s, uh, being the poor college student that I was, I would go into bookstores and read entire issues and then put them back on the rack before it, without even buying them. <laughs> oh, you're one of them. You're one of them. Rick don't under- feel bad. Guilty as charged myself. Oh, Rick. Rick. <laughs> I can't help it. What do I care? I went to the library to read my comic books anyway. So. <laughs> it's the same thing. I mean, literally, I had an experience where I went to a comic book store and he said, hey, this ain't a library. So I went to a library and I read a comic book. <laughs> there you go. Okay, that didn't exactly happen. But yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but you know what? What I find interesting, though, about this whole time period, though, and, and what it sounds like—and correct me if I'm wrong—but it sounds like you said comic books were kind of on a little bit of a decline. Sales were going down. Here are two rival companies that actually come together in an effort to just get comic books in general back up again. Exactly, uh, and that is unheard of in pretty much every competitive industry that exists out yeah. there. Well, the funny thing is with comic books today, and, and, and Rick, I'd love to know your opinion on this, but to my opinion, the competition is kind of a superficial, almost an imaginary one. Because if you look at who the, some of the writers are who work for DC, and uh, they've worked for Marvel, and a lot of the guys who work for DC now got their start at Marvel, and vice versa. They've they've A lot of DC guys have written for Marvel, Marvel have written for DC. Uh, Kevin Smith has written for all three. He's written Independent, he's written Marvel, and he's written DC uh, lines. Uh, and so it's just, it, it's kind of funny that that we think of these two warring brands. I genuinely think the two universes, that war is entirely based out of the fans. It's not from the actual companies themselves anymore. Yeah. And and I agree with that. I mean, you know, I, as a comic book fan, I I don't see one superior to the other. And when it comes to the artists working for them, we actually, our last graphic novel and the one we're working on now, we actually have an artist that worked for Marvel and he said, a lot of times you work for them one day and the next day you're working for another comic company and it's no hard feelings. They just jump back and forth because they cycle through artists so fast. So really when it comes down to it, yeah, they're really not competitors on the competitor scale hmm. other than they just want to outsell the other one. Right. Yeah. And I think what they learned with, with the Amalgam and what they learned more recently with the New 52 is that anything that brings comic books to the attention of the public is a good thing. Because, yeah, sure, you could be going for Marvel's hot new Civil War. Like, Civil War was a big deal in, in uh, Marvel a couple years ago, about five years ago, where they there was now two factions in the universe. Do they want to support superhero registration or not? Do superheroes have to give away their identities to the public or not? And it was this whole issue about civil rights, right? And it was very hmm. mimicking of uh, the Bush administration, of, of all the potential you know, risks of... Because there was one point talking about national IDs yeah. being mm-hmm. issued. After 9-11, I remember that. Exactly. So it was, this was a total response to that. And I guarantee you, because of that, comic book sales of both lines bumped up. Because hmm. when you're in a comic yeah. book shop, you know one shop is not going to carry only DC or only carry Marvel. They're going to carry both brands. They're going to carry Dark Horse. They're going to carry uh, Script, <laughs> hopefully. Uh, they're also yeah. going to carry... A bunch of great, you know, um, fan merchandise, too, like action figures and, you know, statuettes and all these cool things. So when you go in there, yeah, you're going to pick up your Civil War number one, but you're also going to pick up the latest copy of Superman while you're at it. You're going to pick up maybe, uh, you know. So comic book companies are kind of like the shield, like the, like, or kind of like shield in many respects, right? They're, they're there to achieve their means, and they don't care if they have to employ all these different rivals by which to do it. 
uh, but they're going to bring in all these different talents and superheroes, even if they kind of cross over one another or what have you, and they're going to bring them in to to take care of it. Yeah, absolutely. That's interesting. I mean, Jim Lee right now, who is the co-publisher of DC Comics with Dan DiDio, got his start drawing Wolverine for X-Men, you know? And he also was the guy who started Image Comics. He was the one who, with Todd McFarlane from, from Marvel, a lot of guys from Marvel broke off and did that. You know, yeah. speaking of Image Comics, I, I, I don't know if this is directly related to Image Comics or not, but Spawn. Spawn is Image Comics. It is, yeah. okay. Yeah. I, I thought it was Dark Horse for a moment, but it, it's Image. Spawn really was that, I, I think, one of those breakout moments for independent comic books, for, for these guys to say, hey, here the big guys might be having some issues, and they're pulling their resources together to try to get back on top. We can take this opportunity to produce cheap and produce good and be able to introduce into the market and gain uh, a, a fan following. And I think that Spawn is the perfect example of that. And that's how my brother got really introduced to comic books. I remember for a while there, he had several, you know, acid-free boxes in his in his closet with a little, uh, you know, uh, plastic uh, protectors and things of that nature. And he was very, very, you know, collector-ish about it. Yeah, with and, a little cardboard insert so that you can keep the paper yeah. taut and everything, yeah. But he never ever had x-men or superman or anything like that all the stuff that i was rummaging through to try and find i was like what the hell is max and i opened up like what the hell am i reading yeah why is a seven-year-old looking at this this is not good i should put this away now and probably go take a shower and (laughs) (laughs) you know or things like spawn and they were they were super super adult in their content and you could definitely tell the market they were being well pushed towards spawn was mcfarlane's response to batman McFarlane had drawn, he had drawn Spider-Man for Marvel, he had drawn Batman for DC, and he was frustrated at the the limits that he could take Batman to, because Batman has a very set moral code. He won't kill, he won't use guns. Spawn was his way of basically saying if Batman wasn't run by corporate America, and I'm quoting him directly in that sense. You know, Spawn uses heavy artillery, and if you hurt women and children, he has no qualms killing that person. And, you know, it's also very indicative of the 80s, too, right? When you yeah. get start to deal with the action blockbuster and these, gr- you know, gratuitously violent films, too, you start to see that reflected back in comics, uh, even more so with these independent lines of comic books. Huh. Uh, Dark Horse, to answer your question, would be more like characters like uh, The Mask Okay. from Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey's The Mask was originally a Dark Horse character. Uh, Hellboy. Oh, Hellboy. Is a Dark Horse character. Hellboy's awesome. What else is there? Uh, Sin City is a Dark Horse creation as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, because Dark Horse was founded, co-founded by Frank Miller, um, John Byrne, who had written for DC, Mike Mignola, I'm sorry, a lot just, of these characters. I'm just reminded, my, my wife and I, we went to go see Hellboy when it came out in theaters a long, long time ago. And I, I remember her favorite part of the movie was just the fact that he was surrounded by kittens. <laughs> <laughs> and her right. cooing and, and over all the kittens that were around her, you know, around him. But, you know, it, it's it's funny. I, I'm sorry, I just, That's okay. it, it just popped into my mind. But, you know, it's funny how these, these characters can be so endearing yet they are so new and so um so recent to the lineup you know they don't have these long-standing established backstories like superman which i think actually benefits them because like you mentioned they now comic book companies are running into this problem where they're having to reboot all their series and go back and try to introduce it to new fans who don't want to go back and read 500 some odd issues of a comic book to just to get caught up. I mean, that's right. excessive. That's a lot. And yeah. these newer introductions like Spawn, and even though they are very edgy, more adult-oriented, maybe explore more adult themes, 
I think were very appealing for that reason as well, is that, that you could jump into it and you didn't have to have all this ridiculous back history. Definitely. And and uh, for a long time, Dark Horse did adaptations too. Like they did, um, well, Aliens and Predator and Aliens versus Predator was uh, their comic book. I mean, as we've all established in this podcast, I hate the xenomorphs with the, with the fiery passion because <laughs> they scare the living piss he out of me. He is a xenomorph- xenomorphophobia. Um, but there, a lot of that whole fan crossover of Aliens vs. Predator, we have, we owe thanks to Dark Horse, uh, hmm. wanting to, to put those mashups together. And we also owe a lot of um, Star Wars comics before the Marvel buyout, of course, and with Disney and everything. Uh, Marvel did some of the Star Wars comics f- from the direct adaptations, but uh, a lot of the, the expanded universe was published through Dark Horse. Yeah, I love my Star Trek yeah. comics. Those are all published by DC. Yeah, there yeah. you have it. So, so this brings us into the modern age. And Rick, I have a very important question for you. Now that we are in said modern age and the the phenomena of comic book movies, which I think got its start in the mid '90s, really in its first kind of little introductions here and there, and then really kicked off with I think uh, X Men in 2000. X Men was considered the first major. Well, actually, I would argue Blade from two years earlier because uh, yeah, Blade. But mainstream, mainstream, I would go with X Men. Yeah, because Blade, sure. a lot of people saw Blade and never figured that he was a comic book character. Right. So, Rick, do you do you think that the the comic book movie genre? And I know this is something we explored a little bit on Nerds on Film before, but I want to get your opinion. Do you think it is a detriment to the comic book culture, if you will, or do you think it is uh, something that is that it's helping things out? I think it's helped out a lot. I mean. You know, you'll get fanboys who are upset with, you know, I, I won't spoil anything from Man of Steel, but you'll get fanboys that are upset with certain parts of that movie because it doesn't stay to tradition. But it's like Spider-Man in the Tobey Maguire movies. He didn't have web shooters. You right. know, it was something that, OK, that's a different artist's interpretation, regardless of whether it's on a page or on a screen. And I think that the comic book movie genre has really become a genre in its own. It's no longer a an action or a sci-fi thing you know it's it's more of a separate category and i think that it's reinstilling interest in reading comics uh at least for the next generation of people you know so in this past 13 years what do you think uh what do you think is the best standout comic book movie you've seen thus far oh huh. i know that's a huge loaded question yeah what comes I, to the I, front of your mind i don't want to be cliche and now, you're not counting Star Trek or anything like that, right? You're just talking superhero movies? I'm just talking superhero movies. I don't want to be cliche and say The Avengers, but I'm going to say it's a tie between The Avengers and Man of Steel. Really? In my, yeah, I, I really enjoyed both of those. I'm going to be totally cliche and say it's The Avengers. I, I really honestly feel like... I, I mean, I love the Iron Man movies. I think the first Iron Man movie, for me, was one of the first comic book movies that made me want to go back and actually read the comic book. Um, I agree with that. Because I, I was never introduced, really, to Iron Man all that much. Like I said, my exposure to comic books was pretty exclusive to X-Men. But watching the character of Stony Star- Stony Stony Stark? Stony, Stony Tark. That's what I'm going to call him, mm-hmm. ladies and gentlemen. Tony Stark. Um, portrayed by Robert Downey Jr. I don't it know. It was the perfect casting. Oh, I it mean, was just so... You couldn't get better. Yeah, yeah. it's so great, and it, it just—it's so funny, and it was just so engrossing, and it really made me want to go back and uh, and read Iron Man. Yeah, uh, and I've started doing it slowly, trying to reintroduce it in what little time I have in my life. But you know, it's—I think that was that and Marvel's The Avengers. I really thought The Avengers was so well done. Um, yeah. 
Who's the actor who plays uh, the Hulk? <laughs> Which time? Oh, sorry, in, in the Avengers. Mark Ruffalo. Mark Ruffalo, yeah. I yeah. love that guy. Yeah, he was great. I think I think he. I mean, that was such a hard character to do because you know he it was a th- it was the second recasting of that character, mm-hmm. um, and yet he's the same. <laughs> Third, Hulk. if you count Angley's Hulk. No, well, then no, well, <laughs> we don't count that. No, Sorry. we do count it, but he was recasted once with by Edward Norton. And oh, I see what you mean. Mark. Okay, but the weird thing is, Mark Ruffalo's Bruce Banner is the same Bruce Banner from the Edward Norton movie from the yeah. Incredible Hulk. So he's just totally different facial structure, but yet he is the same character. Um, well, you know, you know what's funny about the Hulk is, I mean, Lou Ferrigno is still doing his voice, and that blows me away. I mean. <laughs> I mean, he's still considered the Hulk. I mean, even in the Avengers, the one line that he said was Lou Ferrigno doing it. That is know? so cool. And, you know, I love that about that guy because he is so humble. He He's the kind of guy yeah. who he'll do any guest part or he'll do any little spot. And it's not because he needs the money or anything. Like some, some washed up, quote unquote, washed up actors do that. He does it just because he had so much fun with the character and he loves the reaction that people have when he comes on camera for anything. Well, I uh, think, you know, and not not to stray from topic, but I think Leonard Nimoy obviously has the same respect, you know, within his constant popping up. <laughs> only from the late 80s on, Leonard yeah. Nimoy had such a problem with being Spock post the original series. And I know we're totally getting off on a tangent, but it's Star Trek, yeah. so that's acceptable. Um, it was a comic book. I'll allow it. <laughs> okay, good. Because I don't really care if you were allow it or not. I was going to talk about it. <laughs> but but Nimoy, he, he wrote, I remember him writing this book called I Am Not Spock. And mm-hmm. it was all about how he really just didn't want to be typecasted and how he wanted to talk about that. And then he realized being typecasted is not necessarily a bad thing. And being a part, a cultural icon, and being something that so many people revere and enjoy, is a good thing. So he ended up writing a second second book called "I Am Spock," and totally <laughs> went back and called himself out on being a dick from beforehand, and <laughs> and went and said, "Yes, absolutely, I, I'm I'm okay with it." And I love that. I love to see that within actors who who make that decision to consciously enjoy a character that they brought to the world. Yeah. Well, and what I what I hate with you're talking with typecasting and stuff. I hate when an actor signs on for a role that is an iconic role, and they won't follow through with it. And I mean, prime example recently that I can think of is Michael Rosenbaum with Smallville. Yeah. You know, I mean, I know a lot of people, comic book fans, have a problem with Smallville, but he was Lex Luthor, and honestly, he's one of the best interpretations of Lex Luthor I remember seeing. And he just he gave up about halfway through, you know, and it, when you know you're in a role like that and you give up, it's, to me, that makes me, as a fan, a little upset. Yeah, but. well, I mean, being that I also do acting work, too, I can understand the actor's perspective on it because the whole point of being an actor is versatility, right? You want to be able to play this wide range of characters. And when you get this role, and not, like, with Spock, I don't think Nimoy knew it was going to be this iconic role because, he, you know, who knew how right. successful Right, it only really gained his popularity in syndication. Exactly. So you do it thinking, okay, this is just another role, and this is an interesting role, but I'll go on to do other stuff. And then it becomes this massive thing, and now you are forever associated with that. Right. And the, the struggle that every actor who's been in that situation deals with is whether they want to reject it or embrace it. And it's happened, I would say, with, with Kirk, or rather with, uh, <laughs> with Shatner playing Captain Kirk. Shatner. It happened with Christopher Reeve when he played Superman, and George Reeves when he played Superman. Um, pretty much any actor who's played Superman, you have to just kind of realize I'm stepping in. I'm now assuming this character, and I just hope it's going to work out for the best, basically. Yeah, but at the same time, yeah. you know what? Just fall ass back into money. 
enjoy your life and make people happy. That's yeah. your job as an actor, okay? <laughs> so just, you know, bite the bullet. You, you did something really amazing. You can do other things in your career. You're going to do fine. Don't, don't define yourself as that character. By making those actions, that's what I think really makes that phenomena happen. More than anything is when people the typecast themselves. Right. And yeah. you see this with Doctor Who. Like, this is pissing me off about how every Doctor since Tenet is kind of like, well, actually, since Eccleston, really, he's like, oh, I'm only going to do one season because I don't want to get stuck as this. It's like, screw you, man. Just just, just give people what they want. Own it, yeah. And then Tenet does the same thing. He's like, oh, I'm sorry. I made other commitments. I'm going to move on. And now Matt Smith, who I love, by the way, favorite Doctor since, you know, Tom Baker, now he's doing the exact same thing. Oh, I, you know, I don't want to get tied down. I have other projects I want to do. It's like, come on, man. A couple more years. Yeah. It ain't going to kill you. Well, with television, it's really tough because you're constantly roped into it, right? You, you're you on a contract for a few years at some cases. And, yeah, you can go during the the, uh, the, hiatus, the hiatus of the summer to do you know, your own projects. But, you know, I kind of feel bad for the people like on The Big Bang Theory. Jim Parsons is a stage actor, aside, but now he's, he will forever be Sheldon Cooper. And you know, he he's right now he's on uh, on Broadway in uh, revival of Harvey, and more power to him. You know he's finding the time to do the roles he wants to do, but yet come around late July he's gonna have to get back into, yeah. you know, being Sheldon. Well, if I can just tie us all back into the topic here for a second, back, yes, we, back to comic books. Yes, we we did go off on a lovely <laughs> tangent there, and I didn't quite mean it to go that way, but hey, it was fun while we were exploring it. I guess Rick, how I want to kind of bring a close to this arc, if you will, this story arc that we've been talking about. From your perspective, as a writer, where do you see, you know, because you're in the thick of it, where do you see the comic book industry 10 years from now? You know, they're going a lot of, they're going digital. I mean, everything, everything in print now is going digital. And I'm, I'm very old fashioned, so I'll always be the person that buys the print. So the print will always be there. But I mean, even if you pick up a Marvel comic now, they have these uh, augmented reality. You can scan it, the barcode in your phone, and there's special features like you would get on a DVD in comic books now. And I really think that's the way it's going. It'll tie into your phone a lot, and most of it will be digital. You might even see like an on-demand thing. I mean, hmm. I don't ever see the print going away anytime soon, like not within the next 10 years. But I think eventually, yeah, it's, it's pretty much just going to end up all electronic. Because, I mean, I see the comic book store as being this iconic figure of nerddom. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, it's kind of like our church. If you consider, you know, nerddom a, a religion, it's, it's a place where we gather and we go over our holy scriptures and we come <laughs> together and we pass idols around and we do all this kind of stuff that you associate with a religion. And, and then I, we all drink blood. <laughs> is that... You yeah, know, you hear you that? That was called awkward laughter. Oh. <laughs> That's called you're scaring our guests. Stop it. No, uh, not at all. I've listened to you guys long enough to know. <laughs> I, I guess that, you know, the point I'm trying to make, though, is that it is a place that even if comic books do go predominantly digital, if that's how most people end up getting their comic books, I, I still feel like it's a place where people are going to come together. And it's a place that, that needs to happen and needs to be there. Even though a lot of comic book shops are hurting. You know, the economy has hit them very, very, very hard. And, you know, they're a far cry from, I think, the places that they were back in the 80s, back before, you know, digital medium was even an option for them. I, I hope, though, that that sense of community continues, though, and that people still kind of rally around the comic book shop. I, I hope that 
uh, all of those folks who are listening out there who are owners of comic book shops and what have you continue to, to do what they do best. Because they know. I mean, you, you don't open a comic book shop to make millions of dollars. You open a comic book shop because you want a business that sustains itself, yes, but you do it because you love comics and because you love the community that's involved in them and you love going to work and having fun. And that's the whole point of the comic book shop. Yeah. I feel almost sad because our nerd cave is literally a stone's throw from a comic book shop. Like, literally. It's across the street from where from where, where you live. And uh, we have never even popped in to say hello. Well, you probably popped in. I never popped in to say hello. I haven't, believe it or not. And you know what? I think it's high time that we make a holy pilgrimage. Yeah, I think that's a challenge to all of our listeners. Go into a comic book shop. Don't feel weird. It's okay. We're all cool. Um, and then go and, you know, check something out. Buy a comic book. It's about 3 or $4 for an issue. And maybe yeah. $20 if you're getting a graphic novel. You know, ask a question to some of the folks there. If you really are curious about what is a good comic book, Anyone there is going to be an aficionado. Anyone there is going to be able to help you out. And there will be complete and total strangers that will just take you under their wing. And they'll show you something that you've probably never seen before, never considered, but a really awesome medium uh, for entertainment and for, for uh, narrative storytelling. Yeah. Go, go ahead and grab a comic book, folks. Yeah. And yeah. check them out because they're also kind of like museums. Now, you can see some of these back issues that they've curated, and you can find some really impressive stuff uh, that's in, in this collection. Um, I mean, they're not going to be any like Avengers number ones or Action Comics number ones or Detective Comics number 27s or anything like that. Uh, but they will be, you know, like, wow, that's a pretty big issue that, that you'd be looking at. So They might have reprints, though, even though they don't have the original. They, they do a lot of reprints. So. That's a good point. There you go. And, that, and then you get to see as close to the original as you can get, right? Well, Rick, yeah. I'd, like, I'd like to take a few minutes for you to uh, shamelessly promote your podcast and your comic book company so if you like to take a minute to do that by all means Come on, the mic pimp, is yours pimp yourself sure. Rick. we, we you, have no uh, shame on non-nerds on history just pimp yourself it's all good. <laughs> well first of all you know listening to you guys i think i stumbled onto you guys back in maybe october 2012 and i i tried to catch up on all the the episodes and and i did and you kind of inspired my wife and i to start our podcast so we're we're think about this dot podbean dot com um and you know we're in no way ripping you guys off so that you don't have anything to worry about. But uh, we <laughs> have fun away. doing that, talking about history. And as far as my comics and my novels and everything, you can find out more info on uh, www.scriptcomics.com. And that's S-C-R-Y-P-T. There you so, have it. And feel free to send me an email or uh, you know hit me up. I'm on Twitter, too, at Rick Pepito, So And what's, what's a good email to send you an email to? Uh, rickpepito at hotmail.com that's uh, R-I-C-K-P-I-P-I-T-O and you can find that on you know on my website on script great uh, Rick it's been an absolute pleasure thank you so much for coming on the show uh, um, thank you so much for having me this was great I loved it I had a lot of fun Yeah, I, I will say one of the things that we never expected to do with this podcast we just wanted to talk about history and, and do interesting connections to it and I never expected it to reach the people it's reached. We have a very small but very loyal audience. Yeah. I am so fortunate that we got to meet you through Skype and have you uh, be on our show. And I'm genuinely touched that you were inspired by our, by our work to do your own thing. So um, I'm sure you saw the big stupid grins on our face as you said that absolutely. through the, the Skype cast. <laughs> Uh, sir, you are always welcome back on our podcast. If you ever, oh, if you thank want, you. If, Anytime you guys want to have me back, I'll be back. Anytime. You, by the way, you need to do you need to do a history of video games. 
We oh. need to do an episode on that. So we, we have discussed <laughs> it at length. It will it will happen. I I vow to you and to our fellow listeners, it will happen before the end of the summer. We shall cool. make it so. It's been written in stone. And ladies and gentlemen, uh, of course, you can uh, follow Rick and contact him at his email. You can also follow me at the Brickmont and contact me at the Brickmont at nerdonomy.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Brian Moriarty and uh, our company Twitter account at Nerdonomy and my email as well, Brian at nerdonomy.com. And please, uh, if you haven't, if this is your first episode, hi, welcome. Nice to have you along. Uh, you can subscribe to us through iTunes and Stitcher Radio. Uh, I believe Rick's podcast, not a, uh, Think About This, is also available on iTunes, correct? Yeah, the first couple episodes are. I haven't checked in a while. I'm hoping it's all up there. It should be. <laughs> it, should, it should be. It should be. So you can find him on the iTunes store as well. Go give and, him a review. Go give him a listen. Check him out. Throw him some money, please. Yeah, you know, donate. 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 Yeah, donate. Read one of his comic books. And, and if you have any extra, you know, a little for us, too, wouldn't, wouldn't be too bad. You yeah, know, give well, us you money, know what? You, I think that. you guys need a... I'll have to get a couple of the artists and... Have them sign it. I'll have to send you guys a copy for the Nerd Cave. Cause, uh, oh, my God, that'd be great. That, that space right underneath your Star Trek Into Darkness poster needs something right there. Perfect. <laughs> they, it, it shall be hung in a, in a, uh, in a place of honor. Awesome. Yes. And, folks, thanks for listening. You can tune in to us next time, of course, at the same Nerd Time, same Nerd Channel, nerdonomy.com. And, Rick, thank you again. It was an honor. Oh, thank you. Right. Goodbye, folks.